I was in Dallas downtown Friday night. I didn't really want to be there, but one of our daughters and a friend was going to a concert, and so I dropped them off, found myself in a coffee shop, and worked on this sermon. And as I was sitting there, working and studying in this cool little coffee shop, this man walked in. I noticed his walker. He and I caught each other's eyes. He said, do you mind watching my walker and my stuff while I get something? And I said, sure. He came back and sat down at the table with me. And I thought, oh, no, here we go. (laughs) No good deed goes unpunished. But as we started chatting more, I realized that though he clearly was a man in need, um, having served as an inner city pastor for a decade, my radar is pretty good about whether this is primarily just a money-ask moment or whether it was a genuine desire for relationship. And pretty quickly, I realized he just really wanted to talk to somebody. And so we chatted, we talked, we shared a bit about his life, um, recently out of prison, unemployed, nearly homeless, Um, just wanted to chat. After a while, I asked him, I said, is there anything I can do for you? I asked him. And he said, well, you know, some bus fare wouldn't hurt. So I gave him some money. And what he said next changed everything in that conversation. What did he say? Well, you'll have to wait till the end of the sermon to find out. Now, where does generosity come from? As we've been looking at this series on generous outcasts, just this short series, looking at Hannah, looking at Zacchaeus, and now looking at the woman with the alabaster jar, each of these stories is of an outcast, someone who is seen in society as an outcast who suddenly shows a kind of generosity that is a model for us. Each one of these individuals ends up showing such generosity because they've encountered the gospel, because they've encountered the good news of God and Jesus Christ. Now, what's amazing about our story today is you've got two characters, but there's a great reversal that goes on. You see, one is a Pharisee, and the other is this woman with the alabaster jar. The Pharisee, verse 40 of Luke chapter 7, tells us his name is Simon. So Simon the Pharisee, but four times in four verses, Luke tells us he's a Pharisee. Luke really wants you to understand that this is a Pharisee. And what's important for us to understand how the gospel works in this passage is to not bring our 2,000 years of lenses reading stories about Pharisees and saying, oh, yeah, those Pharisees, those evil, rotten Pharisees. I mean, It is the truth that the Pharisees missed the gospel in Jesus' day. But we need to remember that in Jesus' day, the Pharisees were the good guys. In Jesus' day, these were the good people. These were lay people, laymen, not clergy, who studied the law of Moses, who were seeking to be as morally upright as possible. They were desiring to change society, to change the world. And to do it by living according to the law of Moses, really strictly. These were good, morally upright citizens. If you had to hand your wallet or your baby to a stranger and run down the road after someone, if you saw a Pharisee, that would be a good choice. They were considered in their day good men. And yet the woman is the exact opposite in her day. 
The woman, we're told, she is unnamed, but verse 37 says she's a woman of the city, which means she's a prostitute. She's a woman known in the city. And even her actions at the feet of Jesus have far too much of a seductive interpretation by those watching. She lets down her hair. A good Jewish woman would never unbind her hair in public. And so clearly this woman and her display of affection at Jesus' feet, this is a prostitute. She is as far away on the social and spiritual spectrum from this Pharisee, it would seem, as possible. But a great reversal is coming because she knows the gospel and he doesn't. The woman knows the good news of Jesus Christ. The Pharisee doesn't. You see, generosity we're seeing in these stories emerges out of an experience of the gospel, the good news. And she understands the gospel. And therefore, her actions, her generous, loving actions, are a sign that the gospel has penetrated her heart. Now, here's the gospel we see in this passage. The good news of God in Jesus Christ always begins, as it begins in this passage, with the understanding that I am a failure. We always got to start there. I'm a failure. I'm a total failure. Nothing whatsoever can happen until we come to that first part of the gospel. And that's the problem for the Pharisee. We'll come back to that. But this woman knows that she's a failure. But secondly, it's not just that I'm a failure is what the gospel tells us, but then we're told that I am forgiven. I'm a total failure, and yet I am totally forgiven. And that experience of the good news changes her. It is the intersection between total failure and total forgiveness that we find the good news of God in Jesus Christ, and that's where a generous heart will emerge. But see, what's cool is it's not just that she's a total failure and yet forgiven, but this woman ends up in the story to be a fragrance in that room. She's a fragrant offering, an aroma of the gospel right there in the room. And I'll explain what I mean in a moment. First, she is a failure. And the gospel tells us this. We are a failure. We are failures. She's a failure. We see this little mini parable that Jesus tells them in verses 41 and 42. Verse 41, if you're looking with me, it's Luke chapter 7. Verse 41, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other owed 50. Now, this idea of a parable, a, a, a meaningful story that's meant to evoke a response from Jesus, this idea of someone being a debtor in a parable is often referring to an issue around sin, that we become debtors to God. You think of Matthew chapter 18, the same thing, that there is a sin record. There is a, an account of sin before God. And we all have it. And for some, it may be a very long list. For others, maybe somewhat shorter. You see, we all are sinners and we all recognize it. I, I used to try to convince people when I was a new believer that, you know, people needed to understand that they were sinners. You know, it was like I was going to get Romans 3.23 you know, tattooed on my arm. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But then I realized as I went along that people are quite aware of their sin. They don't, maybe, maybe they don't use the word sin. Maybe they use brokenness. 
Maybe they say they're incomplete. There's things wrong in them, but everyone knows their sin. It, it was like Thursday night at the hockey game. So we're sitting there and there's a guy sitting next to me, new guy, not, you know, the usual people in our seats. And we're chatting first period, second period, halfway through the third period. He finally asked the question that I've been dreading. So you're Canadian. What brought you down here? And I said, you mean my job? And he goes, yeah. And I said, do you really want to know? And he said, what is it? Is it bad? <laughs> he said, I, I know you guys all legalized marijuana up there. Are you like a drug dealer? <laughs> and I said, no, much worse. I'm a priest. And he said, you have ruined my night. <laughs> we all are aware of the sin in our lives. We're all aware that we are sinners. But see, what the parable tells us here is it's, it's even worse, though. It's not just that we're sinners, but verse 42 goes on to say, when they could not pay. In other words, it doesn't matter whether your debt is 500 denarii or 50 denarii. It doesn't matter if it's a big debt before God or a small debt before God. The nature of sin is such that it cannot be repaid. That we are insolvent before God, that we are bankrupt before God, that we cannot pay. We can't fix the problem in front of us. You see, the Pharisee in this story misunderstands the nature of sin. See, when he hears this parable, he thinks to himself probably, yeah, the, 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 Jesus is clearly telling us a story. Clearly, she's the 500 denarii debtor, and I'm the 50. The Pharisees, don't get me wrong, they knew that they were sinners. They knew they had things wrong in their lives. They knew they weren't perfect. They just were working hard to become perfect. And they thought they had a system in place that could make them ultimately perfect and right before God. You see, the Pharisees believed that as they read the Torah, that there were 615 commandments, not just 10, but 615. And they believed that those were all commandments of God. And if you could just live those 615 commandments, you would be righteous before God. And even better, the Pharisees believed if we could get every single Jewish male just for one day, to all obey the 615 commandments, all stand righteous for one day before God, then the kingdom of God would come, Messiah would come, and those Romans would get kicked off the throne. This is what the Pharisees believed. They had a way, a system to manage their sin, but in doing so, they completely misunderstood the very nature of sin. It cannot be fixed. This is not a ledger where I've done this much wrong and I've done this much right, and maybe, you know, in the end, if I get enough in there, I'll just slightly squeak by with more good than bad. Ultimately, our sin is of a nature that it breaks us and ruins us, and we cannot pay the debt back. The difficulty was the Pharisees, because they misunderstood sin, they ended up looking like hypocrites in this world, looking at everyone else, blaming them for what they weren't doing right. You're the ones holding the kingdom of God back. I'm morally more righteous than you are. It's like the two guys on the train. They're on a subway and they're going downtown to go out on a you know, night on the town and 
homeless guy gets on the subway and asks them for money. And uh, the one guy just rudely and aggressively tells him where to go, the one student. But the other college student gives him a few bucks. And next stop, the homeless man gets off and he leaves. And, and the guy that angrily rebuked and rebuffed the homeless man says to his buddy, the other college student, he says, why did you do that? Why'd you give him money? He, he's only going to spend it on alcohol. And the college student says, and we aren't? <laughs> See, the problem with our view of sin often is we, we believe it is something that's a record and a, a ledger we can measure one against the other. But instead, what Jesus is saying here is we are failures before God because we cannot pay back what we have done wrong. We cannot fix it. Thanks be to God, that's why she hears the gospel, that she's forgiven. See, the Pharisee's kind of stuck in this place. He believes that he can make his life right and he never will before God. But this woman knows that she can't fix this and so she runs towards forgiveness. For, verse 42, this little parable goes on to say that when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. He canceled the debt. He, he canceled, he forgave it. We don't know where this woman had met Jesus before this moment, but clearly she's already met Jesus before this story. I mean, she comes in to this story and she's weeping and she's serving him. She has a heart that has been grabbed by the gospel. We, we don't know if there was some undocumented moment that didn't make it into the gospels where this woman and Jesus had an interaction. We don't know if this is perhaps Mary Magdalene, as some have argued, out of whom Jesus cast some demons. We don't know if perhaps chapter six, which is just one chapter earlier than this moment where Luke has his version of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. We don't know, maybe she sat there listening to Jesus' teaching and she heard this gospel of forgiveness. We don't know if she was standing outside the synagogue in Capernaum when Jesus declared these words in Luke chapter four that we just read from Isaiah 61. When he read these exact words in the synagogue, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He's sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what does Jesus do in that synagogue? Imagine she was there and she watched him say those words. He's effectively saying, I have come to set you free. And then he rolls up the Isaiah scroll, hands it back, sits down, and Luke tells us that Jesus' next words, the shortest sermon in all of history, is these words. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I am he who has come to set you free. See, what the woman realizes is that her sin and her standing before God is so broken that she needs nothing less than forgiveness. She can't fix this. It's like the other day, our mini schnauzer, Levi, got into the lipstick. Monica was out for a women's ministry event and I found him having torn through this lipstick. It was all over him and it was all over the carpet, a throw carpet. And, and I said, this is great. Monica's going to come home and she's going to think, I leave you for two hours 
And here, so I'm cleaning. I'm cleaning the dog. I'm cleaning the carpet. And this will not come out of the carpet. And, and trust me, I know how to get stains out because for 20 years, I've been walking with altar guilds in churches that know how to get red wine out of this. So nothing I could do could get the stains out of the carpet. And as I'm down there scrubbing this carpet, I'm smelling the carpet. I'm realizing this dog has done other horrible things to this carpet <laughs> along the way. And we finally come to the conclusion, I think, in this moment, that the carpet is just done for. There ain't no fixing this carpet. The carpet needs to go. We need to get rid of the carpet. And is that not a picture of our sin? At some point, we come to the place going, I can't fix this. Sometimes the carpet just needs to go. Suddenly, as this woman hears the gospel spoken over her, that St. Paul so clearly lays out in 2 Corinthians 5, that whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. For one who knows that the carpet has to go, this is salvation. This is the gospel. And her response is a response of love. Now that she knows she's forgiven. This is what this whole scene is about. Her living out and expressing this generous love towards Jesus. Verse 47, which you could probably argue is the center of this whole series that we've been looking at. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, it's, it's difficult when we translate that because in English, when it comes out of the Greek, it almost sounds like it's causative, like she loved a whole bunch and so he forgave her sins, but that's not what's happening in the Greek. See, the whole salvation moment happened before this event. She heard the gospel and now she's responding. Some of you know that Eugene Peterson, the translator of the message, went to be with the Lord last Monday. Gene was a professor at Regent College where I studied uh, wrote the message, which is a contemporary translation of Scripture. There's moments when you've got a difficult translation of Scripture, and going to the message sometimes helps. Here's what Eugene Peterson's The Message does with verse 47, which captures the essence. It says this, Impressive, isn't it, Jesus says. She was forgiven many, many sins, so she is very, very grateful. You see, at the heart of this woman is an understanding that she is a total failure and totally forgiven. And as I said before, at that intersection between total failure and total forgiveness is the gospel. This is where we find the good news. To be totally honest with ourselves, I know that I'm a failure. I know that I'm a sinner saved by grace. I know that's what I am, but I know the good news of Jesus' forgiveness I know that that man hung on a tree in my place, hung on that cross, bearing my sins and yours, and rose from the dead, conquering death and the grave, and I am forever in his, in his praise. I am forever in need to pour out my heart of love for that. As Luther once so honestly said, as only Luther can be so brutally honest, Martin Luther wrote, he said, so when the devil throws your sin in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, you tell him this, I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know of one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. 
His name is Christ Jesus, the Son of God, and where he is, I shall also be. See, she's transformed by the gospel into this person of gratitude and generosity. And here's the cool thing. Not only is she forgiven from her failed life, but in this scene, she becomes a fragrance of the gospel. She becomes a fragrance, an aroma of God in this scene. Here's what I mean. Look at verse 37. Remember, she's unnamed. The only identification we get of her is she's a woman of the city and she brings this alabaster jar. Now, an alabaster jar is an expensive jar. It literally needed to be broken on the top to open it. So once it's opened, you can't close it again. And it contained very expensive perfume. Perfume is the best translation here over ointment. See, she's bringing this perfume and anointing Jesus. And as soon as she breaks that open, the whole room, can you smell it? The whole room is filled with this fragrance, this aroma of this perfume. But the truth of the story is she, her actions, her life on display in that moment, she is the fragrance in that room. She is the model, the picture that's being put on display for that Pharisee and all his guests and for you and for me. She is the fragrance of God in that room. As St. Paul so clearly lays out, in describing this role we have in the world, that we are meant to live our lives in such a way that people see our lives, they see the gospel pouring out of us, and it's like a fragrant offering that fills this dying and decaying world. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, Paul writes, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. We are the fragrance of the gospel in this world. That's what this woman is. Her actions, her presence fills that room. And it changes everything. Do you see the great reversal of roles? See, the scene begins and you think the Pharisee's the good guy and she's the outcast. But in fact, the Pharisee's the lost one in this story who doesn't understand the nature of his sin, doesn't therefore understand the nature of forgiveness in Christ. She's the one that gets it. She's the one that understands the gospel. The outcast has now become the teacher. The outcast has become the evangelist. See, she effectively takes his role, Jesus says in verses 44 to 46. You know, ancient Near Eastern custom, you take care of your guests well. And somehow, Simon, maybe he was a little worried about inviting Jesus in. Maybe he was a little cautious. So he didn't really roll out the red carpet for Jesus. You know, he, Jesus says to him, you know, Simon, look at this woman. Do you, do you see her? You know, you didn't give me, any, give me any water for my feet when I came, but she's bathed my feet in her tears and wiped it with her hair. You, you didn't offer me a kiss of peace, of welcome, but she has not stopped kissing my feet since I arrived. And you did not anoint my head with oil, but she has continuously anointed me since I arrived. Do you smell that aroma? See, she has actually become the host. 
And she is the evangelist working with Jesus in this moment because she's not the one that needs to get saved. Simon does. Simon is the one that Jesus is seeking to save in this moment. I mean, last week we had Jesus having table fellowship with Zacchaeus, a tax collector, right? Jesus can eat with tax collectors, with sinners. He can also eat with self-righteous religious leaders and try to save them as well. And that's what he's doing with Simon. And this woman comes into the scene as the co-worker with Jesus, as the evangelist to model for that whole room. This is what a gospel life looks like. This is what God can do in a life of great sin and yet great forgiveness. The irony is the Pharisee thought he was the one that was straightening the world out. But he didn't realize that in fact she was the one through her experience of the gospel, through this generous, fragrant offering that would straighten out his world. We don't know what Simon's response was. It ends with us waiting. We, we don't know. And, and I think part of that is for us. Because it's almost like Jesus takes this whole story, Luke takes this whole story and lays it in front of us and says, so we don't know what Simon did, but let's forget about Simon now. What would you do? What will you do in the face of such a fragrant offering of gospel generosity. Verse 47 goes on to say, he who is forgiven little loves little. If we do not know the depth of our sin and the depth of Christ's forgiveness, how can we know the gospel? All Saints is a season which begins next week and um, Instead of just celebrating it on one day, we're celebrating it for a whole season. It's an opportunity for us to not just commemorate those saints who've gone before us, those loved ones who've gone before us who were lights in their generation, but the season of all saints becomes for us an opportunity for us to be spurred on by the gospel to be saints and lights in our generation, to be fragrant offerings in our generation. Where does generosity come from? It comes from knowing the gospel. The gospel that tells us that we're failures, but we're forgiven. And that the generous life that will emerge from that becomes a fragrant offering in the world. That is your call and my call in this world. As I sat in Dallas on Friday night, in that coffee shop, working on this sermon And that gentleman sat down with me and shared his story, imprisoned and in a rough spot, nearly homeless. And I asked if there's anything I could do, and he asked for some bus money, and I gave him some money. What he said next just changed the whole conversation. He took the money and he said, Thank you, Jesus. I'm going to pay it forward for the Lord. And at that point, I said, You know, I'm a pastor. And I got a slightly different response from the guy at the hockey game. And he said, I'm a Christian. I met the Lord in jail. And then he told me about a program that I've been involved with in the past. And he said, in jail, I got to study and get my Bachelor of Arts in Biblical Studies. And I got halfway through my master's degree in Biblical Studies. And then I was released And I don't know what God is going to have me do in this world. I'm in a rough spot right now, but I know one thing. He's called me to serve him in this world. And so we took hands 
at that table and we prayed together. And I gave him my card and asked him to call me to follow up. And then I watched, I watched that fragrant offering take his walker and walk out into the world. This is how the world is changed. It doesn't matter who we are, what we have, what accomplishments or experiences we have in this broken and divided and conflicted world. This is where the world changes. When people who are desperately failed before God are mightily forgiven and end up spending our lives showing forth that generosity for the gospel as a fragrance in the world. This world is dying and decaying, and it desperately needs that fragrant aroma of a gospel people. This is what a dying world needs. And this, my fellow dear generous outcasts, is what we have been called to by grace. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.